0: I'll be reading this morning from Romans 6, and then we'll be going back to 1 Corinthians, 1 Samuel, sorry. But Romans 6, reading beginning in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. As those alive from the dead, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, resulting in death, or of obedience, Resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we again just um, want our hearts to be yielded and humbled before you to receive, God, um, what you want to say to us. Truth, Lord, um, to have Christ lifted up and that we would, Lord, as you draw us to yourself, respond in a yielded, humble, faithful disposition to you that you would truly be exalted within us. Thank you for your word, and we ask that you would teach us and lead us, God, to your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You. Arts and crafts was actually one of my favorite classes in junior high, but I wasn't very good. My cross is fatter than what... Dean's is. I don't know why. I didn't fold it enough times or something, but at least it looks like a cross, I guess. I was actually impressed with myself that it resembled a cross. Quite a bit fatter than Dean's was, though. I appreciate the simple illustration. And in this passage here of of 1 Samuel 16, it um, has a tendency to be anything but simple. Um, It talks about Saul having been rejected by God. And it begins with that chapter 16, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. I have rejected Saul. Why? Well, we're told, if you remember back... In chapter 15, it says in verse 26, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So God rejected Saul because Saul rejected God and his word. But has he lost his salvation? I've already said, It's hard to be definite um, from what information we have on the life of Saul, whether he was saved or not to begin with. But assuming that he was, because I do believe that he was and that we'll see him in heaven, this would sound like perhaps he has now lost his salvation. And then later it even gets worse in this chapter where he has an evil spirit of God on him, which appears to be um, demonic. And we have the question of can a Christian, can a person who is saved, have a demon? So there's a lot going on in this passage that we need to to look at. Um, And it has bearing on what the New Testament tells us about the Spirit's ministry in our lives today. So, first of all, just to work through the passage, God has told Saul, told Samuel... Go to Bethlehem, and I've got a king for you to anoint, one of the sons of Jesse. So verse 2, Samuel's a bit concerned about this because he knows that if Saul hears about it, that he could lose his life. How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. So it's not a lie. It was actually the truth. And it was all the information that anybody in the town needed to know or for Saul. So he went and says in verse 3 And you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves. And come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Then it came about, so now he's apparently in the house of Jesse, waiting for the sacrifice to begin. And it came about when they entered that he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Which has always been the case, and always will be the case, thankfully. We can't see as God sees, um, but we should, as I've already, in a previous message, we looked at that passage from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, um, where Paul says, 2 Corinthians as well, where he says, we do not look at the outward appearance. But we are those who look on the heart. So when the scripture says that all things have become new, we are, all, all things have passed away, all things have become new, that we are new creatures in Christ, is speaking about how we look at one another. Not just by the external things, but by, by the Spirit of God and His activity within our lives. And so Samuel, no different than, than you and me, he, he tends to be impressed with the outward. And he was impressed with what he saw with Jesse's sons. But God has to go through all seven of them and says, not this one, not this one, not this one. And then finally, verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. And behold, he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit until he comes here. More than a few people believe that this is hinting at that David was probably not well regarded in his own home. That when Samuel, and there was no one more esteemed in the whole nation than Samuel, when he comes to this man's home and says, Gather your sons, David wasn't brought in. It wasn't an oversight. It was a slight He he didn't even have the stature within the family to be included in this summoning of all the sons. David will write in one of the Psalms later and say that his father and mother um, rejected him. And whether he's speaking back to his childhood or he's just speaking um, more emotionally, we don't know. But it would seem that he is not highly regarded in his own family. It's a dangerous proposition as we find out later being a shepherd. Um, and life was cheap in those days. And it would not have been unusual if David had been killed while pasturing the sheep. He fought a bear, fought a lion successfully, but he could have just as likely, probably more likely, not been successful, but have died. And he wouldn't have been the first shepherd boy to be killed While on the job. Maybe they thought he hadn't even made it through. We don't know. But he was put in a vulnerable place. And he was not invited when the summons came. This doesn't speak for David being highly regarded within his family. And so they finally bring David in verse 12. So that he sent and brought him in. And he was ruddy. Sometimes that means reddish, or at least he was, was outdoors-looking kind of guy. Clearly, because he's been living out in the hills, sleeping under the stars. Um, he's been roughed up by being outside. With beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. But God has already said, I don't look at the appearance. It's true. But that doesn't mean that our walk with God won't affect our countenance. This is nothing about his stature. It's a difference between looking at the stature of a man and looking at the countenance of a person. And the eyes are the lamp of the soul, as Proverbs says. And you can't tell everything by looking at a person's countenance, by looking at his eyes, but you can usually see something. We all deal with this every day. You deal with people that just something about the way they look just makes you uncomfortable. And other person, people, it just puts you at ease and you go, there's something different here. I remember um, vividly walking into the garden tomb in Jerusalem many years ago after seeing all of these religious sites, the birthplace of Jesus, you know all these different things. And there's shrines in every one of them. And then you walk through the garden tomb. And my brother and I looked at each other and said, Christians run this place. We had Nobody even said a word. And it wasn't because of the way anything. It was just something was different about the atmosphere of that place. And sure enough, Christians run the Garden Tomb, the only place we visited in all of Israel. And as soon as you walked in, you knew something's different here. Sometimes that's true even of people. I know there's been times when we've had... Students that, that you, we just, because you don't, you know, pictures don't tell you a whole lot. But it, we, even we've had students show up and go, we're not real comfortable. There's a darkness here. In fact, not long ago, one student was quite dark. I don't know how better to describe it. And people were uncomfortable with him. The girls particularly go, I don't know if we want to be around this guy. Should this guy even be in Bible school? We came to found, find out very shortly that he didn't know the Lord. And within a couple of weeks, he had received Christ. And the darkness was gone. And it was amazing to watch the transformation in his life. He was with us for two years. And it just made me cry thinking about it, particularly at the end when he's, when he's finishing up his time, to see how much this guy has changed. And just, not just in his behavior or his attitude, but even in the way that he looked. God looks on the heart, but the heart will affect the countenance. And so that seems to be what's being stressed here, that with this boy, young David, probably only 12 years old, 13 years old, there was a relationship with God. And David indicates that in his Psalms, that when he was a shepherd boy, he was was coming to God in those times of isolation, being forgotten by his family, probably felt abandoned by his family, but he sought God during those difficult circumstances. And I believe the scripture is indicating to us that that when he walked in the room, it was reflected in the way that he looked. This is a boy who knows his God. And God said to him, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. This is the one that God had said earlier, through Samuel, that God has chosen a man after his own heart. He's not a man yet. Again, nobody thinks, any, I've never read any commentary that thinks that David was older than 18 at this point. Most think he was an early teenager. 12, thirteen years old many think that, that, that and, and it was that when he fights Goliath in the next chapter, he was no more than seventeen years old, and so there's a gap of four or five years between when he was anointed and when he fights Goliath. He was just a kid, but God found a man after his own heart. I've said this before, and I, 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 I think that we 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 should not underestimate what God can do in a child's heart. And many times, the most spiritual person, the one who has the greatest intimacy and walk with God, is that child. When my our boys turned 13, and I took each of them on a on a trip of whatever they wanted to do, I used that time not to principally talk to them about the birds and the bees as sometimes people thought. Oh, the 13-year-old trip. Gads going to go talk to him about the birds and bees. I use that time to, to, more than anything else, to tell them a time comes in your life when you have got to take ownership for your relationship with Jesus. I believe you've already accepted Christ. I believe you already belong to him. But when are you going to seek him for yourself? You shouldn't wait until you're 20, 25, 30. Now is the time. You can be a man of God before you are physically and chronologically a man, is what I told my boys. Now is the time to want to be the man, spiritually, that God has created you to be. And I really believe they embraced that. They wanted to play the man, spiritually, even though physically... They were not yet able to be men. And I think that's what we have in David. A man, spiritually, after God's own heart. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now look at the next verse. So the Spirit of God comes mightily upon David, verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And now we've got this contrast here. Clearly it's, it's, it's been set up as many of the things in 1 Samuel have been for the purpose of contrast. And so the contrast between the Spirit of God coming upon David and the Spirit of God leaving Saul. Now, if Saul has just lost his salvation then we have to say that David has just gotten saved. Now why this is confusing is because in the New Testament we know very clearly anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to God, right? Romans chapter 8. You have to have the Spirit of God to belong to Him. But if that is what is happening here, one man is getting saved and the other man is losing his salvation, then it seems to me we also have to say there's only one person saved in the Old Testament at this time. And that was Saul, and now it's David. But see, that's too big of a generalization. And the point here is not that God has rejected Saul. It says God has rejected Saul as king. This is an anointing for being king. Saul was anointed as king, and the Spirit of God came upon him to be king. And now David is being anointed as king, and the Spirit of God is coming upon him to be king. But there's only one person who has the enabling of God at any given time to be king. And it's the Spirit's enabling. It's not the Spirit for salvation. I don't believe. And this is where the Old Testament and New Testament are absolutely consistent as we would expect. I so appreciate Dean being so clear and so simple about what it means to be saved. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is not a New Testament truth. It is throughout the Bible. People were saved in the Old Testament the same way they're saved in the New Testament. The only difference is the Old Testament believers did not know the personal name Jesus. So they did not call on Jesus in the Old Testament to be saved. But they were saved by grace, through faith, in God's promised Savior. They didn't know His name. But they knew God was going to be providing a Savior. So in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is used as an Old Testament illustration of how we are saved today. By grace, through faith, in Christ. Abraham was saved. He believed God. And it was reckoned. What was reckoned? His faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, Abraham is never spoken of as having received the Holy Spirit, is he? Never. David is spoken of receiving the Holy Spirit. Saul is spoken of receiving the Holy Spirit. But Abraham isn't. But Abraham was declared righteous in the same way that we are declared righteous. So I don't for a minute think personally that Abraham was ever in risk of losing his salvation. But this king was at risk of losing the Holy Spirit. The difference, I think, is is, is an apples and oranges difference. That no person in the Old Testament, in my estimation could be wrong, don't think I am, but maybe I am, could lose his salvation. But a king could lose the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Saul did. And David was worried that he could. So he will write in one of his psalms, Lord, do not let your spirit depart from me. Because he knew if he had to function as king without God, without the enabling of God's spirit, that he would be no different than Saul. And it terrified him. Let me read from F.B. Meyer here. appreciate him a lot. And he's got different character studies that he's written on many of the Old Testament figures. And in his book on Samuel, he says, It is abundantly sure that the work which man does in this world is not wrought only by the force of his genius, the brilliance of his intellect, Or by those natural gifts with which God may have endowed him, but by something beyond and behind all these a spiritual endowment which is communicated by the Spirit of God for a special office, and which was retained so long as the character is maintained. But when the character begins to deteriorate and decline, when there is a divorce between religion and morality, when a soul turns definitely from the will and way of God to the paths of disobedience, then that mystic power which our forefathers called unction and which the Bible calls the Spirit of God seems to be dissipated and to pass away as the aroma when the scent has been long exposed to common air. So Saul lost the special endowment of power which had enabled him to subdue his enemies and to order His kingdom. I think he is spot on. F.B. Meyer. This isn't about him losing. We don't even know if Saul was saved. Okay? If he was, I don't believe this passage is speaking to a loss of salvation. It is clearly saying he needed the Spirit to be king. And when the Spirit left him, he is now functioning in his own strength without the Spirit of God. And David needed the Spirit of God to be king. And when he committed his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, he had every reason to expect the Spirit of God to depart him. And he prayed, God, let not your spirit leave me. That's what this is about. And in that sense, again, I think there is a a direct equivalency with what the New Testament teaches And that's why the application for us today is that as Christians, we too can lose that sense of the Spirit's enabling, His divine unction. If we move away from God, New Testament says, if we quench His Spirit, if we grieve His Spirit, there is a sense in which we can lose the Spirit in the sense that Saul lost the Spirit. And in the sense that David was afraid of losing the spirit. We can lose his enabling, not his presence. I think that is such an important distinction to make. And it's why I read from Romans 6 this morning. That as a person who has been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, and raised from the dead with Christ, we can live as slaves of sin. And so Romans 6 is saying, do not continue to present the members of your body to sin. This is not who you are any longer. When Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the free gift of God is not like the wages of sin. It is eternal life. He's talking to Christians about sanctification. Sanctification. Does it pertain to salvation? Absolutely. It is a salvation truth, but not in that context. He's saying to a Christian, you can live in either life or death. In Galatians 5, he says it's either going to be the fruit of the Spirit or the fruit of the flesh. In Ephesians, he says it's either going to be light or darkness. And so we can just go through Scripture. There's this, this, this contrast that is constantly set before us. If I'm not walking according to the Spirit then I am walking according to the flesh, Romans 8. I cannot think that there is some land of neutrality when it comes to spiritual things. It is one or the other. And so when we read here in 1 Samuel that the Spirit of God left him and an evil spirit came upon him, there's a sense in which we shouldn't be scratching our heads so much about whether this was a demon or not but, and, and miss the obvious point. In spiritual matters as in physical matters, there is no neutral place. There is no vacuum that m- remains empty. We're told, I'm no scientist by any stretch, but you can ask Jim. He's a scientist here, Jim Powell. Nature abhors a vacuum. Something has got to fill when there is a vacuum. That is true spiritually as well. If I am not walking with God, then I am giving into. Sin, the world, and the devil. And I am deceiving myself if I think that I can, can resist God and not be under the influence of sin, the world, and the devil. Something is going to control me, bear upon me, influence me, conform me. And it's either going to be God or all that is his enemy. Again, there's, this contrast is so clear, so simple in Scripture. James says, If you make yourself a friend of the world, if you love the world and become a friend of the world, you make yourself the enemy of God. Christians. There is no neutral place. This is about a loss of the Spirit's enabling. This isn't a case of the Spirit being a reward, His departure being a punishment. The presence of the Spirit of God is grace. It is undeserved. But God can't give his spirit to the restrictive, to the one who, who, who is opposing him, he must, we must willingly receive. And Saul is living in disobedience to God. It should not surprise us that he in doing so, has rejected God's enabling presence. You can't live in disobedience and know the grace of God's enabling. It just doesn't work that way. So this evil spirit from God, again, I appreciate what F.B. Meyer says, because I think he's right on the mark again. In the strong, terse Hebrew speech, the Almighty is sometimes said to do what He permits to be done. That's a good way of saying, when you read sovereignty in the Old Testament, God is sometimes appears to be the cause for evil. That is just the, the, the way that the Hebrew language works. But God doesn't cause evil. He cannot tempt us, the New Testament tells us. But in the Old Testament, it's as though he is the agent of temptation. But he's not. He is sovereign over everything that happens, but he is never himself culpable, morally responsible for the evil that takes place in this world. So this spirit, again quoting from F.B. Meyer, when therefore we read that an evil spirit from the Lord troubled Saul, we must believe that as Saul had refused the good and gracious influences of the Holy Spirit and and definitely chosen the path of disobedience, he definitely chose the path of disobedience, there was nothing for it but to leave him to the working of, of his own evil heart. Amen. We can grieve God's spirit. We can quench God's spirit. And when we do, we are left to the workings of our own evil heart. But Christians don't have an evil heart. This Christian does. And again, I believe that Romans 7 is speaking of the Christian when Paul says, Who will deliver me? From this wretched body of death. When Paul is saying, there is evil in me. Not there was, there is. Oswald Chambers says that there is nothing different about the criminal than is true about you and me, except he's done it and we have it. Then he says that the only thing that safeguards us is the redemption of Jesus Christ. And all we need do is hand ourselves over to Him. And we need never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. Amen. There are terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. And if I think I can rebel against God, grieve God's Spirit, quench God's Spirit, and not experience the terrible possibilities that lie within my heart, I am deceived. And the nature of sin is to harden, is to harden our hearts so that we would be deceived by it. And it's the truth. And Saul, I believe, is an Old Testament illustration of what the New Testament is saying. You can be on your way to heaven and live like you're on your way to hell. You can be saved and yet not know the sweet presence of God, enabling of God. you wonder, where is God gone? How did I arrive at the point that I'm at today? It's because we've been resisting Him, grieving Him, quenching Him. And God cannot work with the resistive. We have to yield to Him. That's why again, Romans six, present yourself to Him. It's the same word as yield. Otherwise, I will not know eternal life. I have it. It's mine. But the point of Romans 6 is, I, won't, I will experience God's grace, but I won't experience life. As long as I'm not yielding myself, presenting myself to him, I'm going to experience the wages of sin, not the free gift of eternal life. And I've been saved to know life. Not just know the grace of God, but been saved to know life. And it can only be known by those who have trusted Christ and are yielding their lives to Him in a daily, moment by moment disposition. I don't believe that a Christian can receive a demon. Could be wrong. But I don't see that a Christian can be possessed by the devil while being possessed by Christ. It's one or the other. I do believe that we can be very much under the influence of Satan, just as we can be under the dominion of sin and under the dominion and influence of the world. We can certainly, as Christians, so remove ourselves from the enabling grace of God that God is not having his way with us. Satan is. I believe that Ananias and Sapphira and the book of Acts were saved when Peter says to them, why have you lied against the Spirit of God and allowed Satan to fill your hearts? The idea is not them being possessed, but them being under the control of, filling and being a picture of being under control of. Why have you lied against the Holy Spirit and allowed yourselves to be filled with the devil Saul in his bad state that he was in ranting all but insane his servant said to him you need a musician if you just had a capable musician to play the harp it would calm you down good idea So they find a musician, happens to be David. And so David, as this young, early teenage boy, gets his first exposure to the the palace, to the king, and to the throne. And And it has some ministry in Saul's life. Verse 18, Then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. Nobody's sure quite why he was being described as a warrior because, as I said, he was a young boy. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David's hand. Then David came to Saul and attended him, and Saul loved him greatly. And, and it would calm him, we're told earlier in the chapter, whenever he would play. So back in verse 16, Let the Lord now command your servants Who are before you, let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you shall be well. What's all that about? People from every culture, all through the centuries, have recognized that music is powerful. And it can have a spiritual influence upon people, for good or for bad. One historian, I forget the name of who it was, said that there that he said, If 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 I could it is music and poetry which moves a nation. Those that worship the devil have music. They have music. We that worship Christ have music. But I would say this, and I'm not a musician. And I do not begin to understand its power and, and all the ways that God uses it. But it is not the solution. I believe it can be part of ministering to a soul. Just as bad music, dark music can be pulling people away from the Lord. And I could speak anecdotally, that's all I could do because I don't have anything in the Bible that says there is music that would pull you away from the Lord. There, is music, there are passages in Scripture that talk about music being used by God spiritually, sing to one another hymns and spiritual songs from Ephesians. But I think we all know of examples. I can think back to my high school days where I knew kids that um, were becoming evil. I don't even know way they put it. I, was, I remember one boy, I was scared of him. Christian home, was not yet a Christian, and this kid going to bed at night with the most awful music playing on headphones in his ears. Just awful, dark, demonic music. It wasn't a surprise when everybody got the news that he woke up one night and got a, a knife and attacked his parents. But music's not the problem. And music is not the solution. Saul's problem cannot be touched by music. You can be in a bad place spiritually and listen to good music, and it can calm you, it can minister to you. But it is not what you need. We each need Jesus. And there are people in this world who don't have Jesus, but they can come to church, and they can be ministered to in their souls by the music and the fellowship and the preaching and leave as lost as they came. That's a fact. And they've been ministered to. Major Thomas, boy, he, he could sing. Something most people don't remember about Major Ian Thomas. The guy could sing. And he, and he would often conclude his two-hour-long sermons with him leading in a final song. Awesome. And boy, one of his pet peeves was how so much music in churches appeals to the soul and not to the spirit. And I never heard him quite define that. But again, I think it's something that if we're tuned into the Spirit of God, we can know is this something that's just appealing to me physically and soulishly, but it's not really me to the spirit of God, encouraging me, ministering to me on a spiritual level. But even having said that, and I believe that music can be spiritual. God says that in his word. It is not music that we need. We need Jesus. Saul didn't need a harpist. Saul needed a new heart. Saul needed repentance. He needed to come back to his God. And all the harpist was doing was soothing him. But it would not take the place of saying, God, I have sinned against you. Confessing his sin. Coming to the Lord as one who had a relationship with God and had moved away from him. Music can be soulish or spiritual. It can stir the soul, soothe the soul, without ministering to the Spirit or engaging the Spirit or being from the Spirit of God. The devil and the demonic, and if he's got a problem with a demon, the devil and the demonic can only be overpowered by the blood of Christ. And that is true for us today. We can get ourselves sideways with God. When we open ourselves up to attack by the enemy. And music is not going to help. It's not the answer. But it is to stop grieving God. Stop quenching the spirit. And come to him and say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you've never left me. I'm still yours. But God, I've been living in darkness. Manifesting the fruit of the flesh, walking according to the flesh. Jesus, save me from me. Already saved, but coming to Him each day for that salvation. Living each day, experiencing the eternal life that we were saved to experience by coming to Him. It's a great contrast set here between a a young boy. Who is obviously walking with God, and now he is knowing the enabling of God to be king. And a man who had great potential, I believe, a relationship with God. But he is forfeiting that daily experiencing of God's enabling because of his own rejection of God's word and resistance to God's will. I'll close this in prayer.